More than 500 Frito-Lay union workers striking for the first time ever in the company's history. This strike comes after union workers complained of poor working conditions and a lack of pay raises despite other plants raising wages. Those of us who are out here every day is a sacrifice we're making. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired, but at Frito it was a totally different tired. Like, you just wanted to shut it down. After being on strike for nearly three full work weeks, the strike at a Topeka, Kansas plant is over. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. Last week, workers at a Frito-Lay plant in Topeka, Kansas, settled a three-week strike, a rather remarkable occurrence in an anti-union state like Kansas. And with me to talk about the horrendous working conditions at the plant and the terms of the settlement is State Representative Jason Probst, a Democrat from the state of Kansas. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thank you for having me. Let's start off, uh, uh, why'd the workers there go on strike? Well, you know, what, what we started to learn over time was just how awful the working conditions were there. We, we heard about 84-hour work weeks, uh, people weren't getting any time off, working seven days a week, doing these suicide shifts where they work 12 hours, get a few hours off and have to come back for another 12 hours, just unconscionable work conditions. And then when they, you know, try to negotiate the contract, they couldn't get time off, they couldn't get pay raises. And I think the employees had finally had their fill of that. How unusual is it for a strike like this in Kansas? You don't, we don't often hear about it in the national news. I assume it's not often going on. We don't see strikes very often in Kansas. I mean, we're a right to work state. Uh, we're very uh, tilted in favor of employers in this state. Uh, so we just don't see a lot of, uh, you know, there, there's some bargaining that happens but we don't typically see a full-on strike like this with hundreds of workers saying we've had enough and we're gonna leverage our, our collective ability to force change. When you say a right to work state, uh, that's, uh, that's the other side's uh, language. Uh, that actually means that it's very hard to uh, organize a union in a state like Kansas. Um, in a state like Washington, if uh, the shop unionizes, everybody has to join the union and pay their union fees. In uh, the so-called right-to-work states, you can opt out of the union and basically, um, you know, people freeload. Why pay your union fees? It's much harder to organize. It's much harder to fund a union. So it's an, an anti-union state. Let's, let's put it that way. That's accurate. And every year in the legislature, the business and industry lobby comes to us trying to make it a union. They've made the argument in the last couple of years that taking dues from people and, and having a union is unconstitutional and violates free speech, which is nonsense. Uh, but, but every year they come and try to make it harder uh, for workers to, to organize and unionize. Right. So, so let's be clear. Clear. We talk about um, Frito Lay. It's actually owned by PepsiCo, so uh, giant conglomerate. What was the reaction locally to the to the strike? There was there general support from people, uh, criticism in the press, surprise. 
I think there was a little bit of surprise, but once once employees started talking about the conditions there and what they had been dealing with for years, you know, a fun thing that the company did is instead of giving raises, they were giving one-time bonuses and trying right. to pass that off as equal. And, and of course, no one's no one's wages is going up at that point, but they said, oh, well, we'll, we'll give you this one-time bonus. Uh, but there are some employees that have been there over 10 years without a substantive raise. And uh, I think when people started hearing that, started hearing some of the stories about the long hours, seven day a week shifts, people were really supportive. I think they understood that this was another example of uh, people, workers just being, you know, kind of crushed into the ground in, in the daily grind and the company making loads of money and not, not really caring about the actual lives of the people that work for them. Since it is such an, it is so hard to organize in a state like Kansas, and it is so unusual for there to be a strike, and this lasted 20 days, how much do you think the pandemic uh, had to do with inspiring the workers to uh, fight for better conditions in the working place and more pay? Oh, I think quite a bit, and and I think uh, one of the things that I, that I, you know, saw come out of this is that the real difference between like white collar workers and blue collar workers, you know, they, these are, you know, on the line, these are the people actually making your potato chips and, and your Cheetos and things like that. And they have no choice but to be physically present at the production facility. And meanwhile, you know, all the, you know, managerial staff and everybody is talk, you know, working from home and, and uh, doing Zoom meetings or whatever. And I think that that during the pandemic, Kind of led to some of this frustration that they were being asked to work more it was probably harder to find uh you know additional staff during the pandemic and and so they had to do this work regardless of what was going on in the world as it relates to the pandemic and not being you know treated fairly for the work that they did that still allowed this company to make huge amounts of money during the pandemic so workers walked out on, on July 1st. Was uh, any idea that at the time that it would go on for this long? I, I think nobody knew at that point what would happen uh, or how long it might last. The union and the workers seemed to be prepared for a long strike, at least a month-long strike, uh, and longer if necessary. But I think at that point, there was still some hope that there'd be a resolution uh, reached pretty early on. Yeah, and, and to be clear, it wasn't easy for the workers. Of course, they had to go without pay, but also this is America, so they had to go without health insurance as well. Yeah, one of the, fir the first thing the, the company did after the strike was announced, uh, they said they were cutting off health insurance benefits for all the striking workers. So, so now people who were striking and, and willingly saying, I'm going to sacrifice my financial well-being, uh, suddenly found themselves uh, faced with no health insurance uh, no idea how many of them may have had chronic conditions or their children had chronic conditions, uh, but that was a, a certainly a piece of leverage the company had over all the employees by being able to yank their health insurance on day one. So do you have any idea what the final settlement was? I know uh, I heard that there was a vote and union leaders said it was close, uh, but they agreed to ratify the contract. Uh, what the, do you know what the broad terms of the contract Broadly, it looks like the employees will get a uh, 4% pay increase over the next two years. They'll get at least one guaranteed day off each week, and they will not have to work these suicide shifts anymore. So those are the things they, they were able to, to secure from the company. 
what I've read, it looks like there still aren't limits on overtime, so they, they will be able to work people overtime. They may have to structure it a little bit differently than they have in the past, but that, that seems to be the final agreement, and we haven't seen a final vote count on this, but there is indication that it was fairly close. Yeah. I'm sure it's a little disappointing for some of these workers. Uh, 4%, that's 2% a year. That's not even inflation right now. And from all accounts I've heard, uh, wages haven't gone up in uh, much over the past decade. The, the, the suicide shifts, um, that seemed to be the symbol of this strike, and they did win on that point. So, yes, that was that was the the big, you know, the big issue that where they talked about that was leading to people not having any quality of life. That they they were missing holidays, they were missing family time, they were missing kids' events. Uh, when you work those kind of shifts in a production setting, it just doesn't leave any time for any other part of life, really. Uh, so it's funny, I was reading the uh, Pepsi's uh, press releases on this, and, and one of the things they did to make their case was to say that they had, they had hired like 220 new workers already this year. And at a plant, which from what I understand has uh, about 850 workers. So we're looking at like a 40 to 50% turnover annually. That tells you it's a pretty terrible place to work. Uh, so if it's so bad, if they haven't had raises for so long, they're working these terrible suicide shifts, uh, there's all this turnover, why would somebody work at a place like that Frito-Lay plant? Uh, how hard is it to find other work in Kansas? I think there are a number of things that factor into that. I used to work production and manufacturing years ago, and my takeaway from my time in that field was they pay you just enough to not get another job. If you're there any length of time, you get even modest raises, you're making enough money that you're able to get by, you're not really thriving, and the nature of the work keeps you there physically for long periods of time, so you can't even take time off to go look for another job. But the other, the, uh, some of the other reasons is I, it's kind of like the devil you know or the devil you don't know. Mm -hmm. you, you work somewhere, you, you make your money, and you kind of build your life around that, and people can endure an awful lot and, and it's kind of like, what's it, like boiling a, a, a lobster in a pot, right? It's, it's slowly killing them. It's slowly consuming, you know, all the best years of their life. And then at some point they're near enough retirement age, they don't know what else to do. Right. And there, there aren't a ton of other jobs out there. If you, if you don't have a specific skill or you don't have a degree or you don't have technical training in a field, these jobs are all pretty much the same. They, they, they're from one place to another, there's not a ton of difference. And so you don't feel like it's, there's a lot of incentive for you to, to leave, upset your life, uh, take on the, the, the financial and the health questions that you may encounter from a job change and, and kind of make those changes. Right. Just even the health insurance issue, you know, e even if it's a company that provides health insurance, uh, you quit you start a new job someplace else, there's always like that three month period. So you've got your job search period, you've got the three months uh, uh, before you qualify for benefits. It's, uh, it's really hard to get through those transitions. And I think, I think Jason, this speaks to uh, one of the huge imbalances in the labor market which a lot of people lose sight of. If you, if you read your Econ 101 textbook, they, they actually use 
uh, the labor market is an example of uh, the, the supply demand curve. It's like the classic example of supply and demand. If, you know, if you raise the cost, employers buy less of it. Uh, if uh, uh, there's uh, huge demand and uh, then wages have to go up, but it doesn't actually work that way because as you pointed out, it's hard to switch jobs and uh, workers, and, and we can all think about this ourselves, we're often very reluctant to switch jobs. A big part of our social life are the friends we make at work. It's part of our daily routine. Uh, when you when you switch jobs, you have to change your commute. Sometimes you might have to move entirely. Uh, and so we're much more likely as workers to stick with the job we have, the devil we know, than the devil we don't. And that gives a huge advantage to employers because, well, they they treat us like commodities. Uh, they they know that you're you're not actually one and you're you're not going to behave the way the market says you would uh which is just rational self-interest and get up and go for the highest wage you can get no matter what and that on top of the huge power imbalance especially in a in a so-called right to work state i i wish i could do air quotes in a podcast, but it doesn't work that way, uh, where it's so hard to organize. And, and my understanding is that this union represents about 650 workers and about 300 were crossing the picket line and still working. Yeah, there were several people. I don't know the number specifically, but I know there were people who were who just reached a point where they, they, they couldn't go without the pay anymore. Right. They couldn't go without the health insurance. So they were willing to, to go back in and go to work. So um, what broader lesson do you think we take away from this? Well, I think certainly, I mean, to me, the, the, the standout thing is there's, there's not a better example to me of why your health insurance needs to be separated from your employer. I, I, I mean, the fact that they were able to in, initially weaponize health insurance coverage for their employees who decided to advocate for themselves uh, that that demonstrates to me that that we've far too much power in the hands of, of our employers. Um, the other is, I think that in, certainly in this environment, employees have uh, more strength than they've realized, and probably more strength than they've had in a number of years. Uh, that, that that they were able to stop production or slow production and force the company to to make at least some concessions indicates to me that employees do have some power. And, and probably a third is that employers are going to have to acknowledge this and adapt to this, or they're going to, you know, in Kansas, we have a lot of complaint about workforce and we can't find enough workers and whatever. Well, this is going to continue. I mean, I think people have had their fill and they're tired of giving up their lives for substandard wages and, and sacrificing, you know, their quality of life so that somebody else can make outsized profits and, and then being told that they should just be happy about that. I think that if people will keep that in mind and recognize the power they have, we'll start to see some adjustments on the employer end. And as shitty as the conditions and pay are for the workers at the Frito-Lay plant, the, the CEO of PepsiCo, he's doing fine, right? Oh yeah, he's making $21.5 million a year, um, depending on the stock price. So he's He's doing great. The board's doing great. They get paid, uh, you know, in stock and uh, compensation. So yeah, the top level executives are doing great. The median uh, PepsiCo 
employee gets about $46,000 a year. And uh, the, the, employee, the CEO to employee pay ratios, 462 to one. <laughs> and and did, did the CEO have to strike, go on strike to get that, that, those high wages or? Yeah, I'm guessing not. <laughs> he got that and, and probably has a couple of other incentives built in there that, that, uh, that I wasn't even able to find out about. Right. So, so that, that CEO to median pay 462 to one, uh, which is, uh, you know, more than, more than twice, even the ridiculous national average of, uh, I, 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 my notes here, it says it's 227 to one right now. So that's right. Even by ridiculous standards, it's more ridiculous. Right. So, you know, if this, if this 2% a year raise over two years, uh, has to come out of his paycheck. He's still doing fun. He'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one one of the things I, I think is important to talk about here is we have these CEOs making this, you know, kind of outrageous money and all this money is being kind of siphoned out of the state. And mm -hmm. in the legislature, we have lobbyists in $5,000 suits coming to lobby lawmakers to lower their their tax rate again. They the last four years, they companies like Pepsi came in and asked for income reduction or or basically free money that they've been hiding offshore, and and finally this last year they were able to get that through. They get that money, but it doesn't translate at all to the employees. The employees are still struggling. Still, employees are still dealing with uh, rising cost of of basic goods, and a lot of that came before some of the inflation that we're you know, slight inflation we're seeing now, but medical care costs, educational costs, uh, utility costs have all been going up in this state well before any of the, the, mo the more common things that we're seeing now. So it, to me, it's, it's a lot of money being siphoned out of our state, not routed back to employees. And I think our local economies and our state economy would be doing much, much better if, right. if that money was coming to employees. Right. So, so those stagnant wages at this free to lay plan over the past decade, that that's a that's a drag on on Kansas state growth because, you know, almost every penny that goes into those paychecks are being spent right there in Kansas. Absolutely. And that helps, you know, your local mom and pop businesses. And and it's it, I mean, it's it just happens locally and that money is being recirculated. Uh, but when these companies are taking this money out of state, not paying enough into the state tax coffers. You know, one thing that's the stat that I found that was interesting, the average Pepsi state tax rate was income tax was 1.2%. Well, in Kansas, if you make $30,000, your, your tax rate's 5.25%. So we have individuals paying, you know, a much higher tax rate on their income than, than PepsiCo and its CEO and its executive team is paying. Uh, so, so obviously, Jason, this isn't the last strike that's going to happen. There's been several other high-profile strikes over the past few weeks. Uh, it's over now, but if uh, our listeners wanted to help out the next time we hear about one of these strikes, uh, what do you think they could do? Well, I, I think one thing is some kind of you know consumer consciousness. Uh, since the strike's been going on, a number of people have refused to buy Frito-Lay products. I've not purchased any Frito-Lay products and probably won't resume that. But one thing that happened locally that I thought was really interesting is uh, a local magazine, 785 Magazine out of Topeka, set up a utility fund and basically said, 
can you donate what would be the equivalent of a, of a water bill for, for each of these striking workers and we'll raise the money and route that out. So any opportunity to financially support or I guess emotionally support the workers and understand that, that you can help them out by you know, helping with some of the cost, routing it through funds that will help the workers make it through the strike, uh, I think ultimately gives the employees a little more leverage for a longer period of time. Yeah, and and most unions do have strike funds uh, that you can contribute to during strikes. So that's something that people can do with their wallet. And of course, just the emotional support, the publicity pressure on these giant corporations. They're they're very sensitive to their public image. Uh, that's really useful. You know, bashing them and their CEOs on Twitter and uh, Facebook and all that. Uh, you, you can see their PR bots going into high gear to respond to that. So uh, people can always do that. And and folks should remember, we're all in this together. That's the big lesson from our that, that we have on this podcast. You know, you grow the economy from the middle out. When workers are making higher wages, it's better for everybody. And uh, when your neighbors are uh, doing better, they're spending money in the community, it's good for your community. So when uh, these workers went on strike, in a sense, uh, we were all out on the picket line if uh, we knew what was good for us. Absolutely. Well, th- thanks for your time, Jason. And, and, and thank you for being a progressive champion from the great state of Kansas. Well, thanks for having me. And I really enjoyed talking with you. And I'm, I'm glad to be a progressive stalwart in Kansas. It's not an easy job, but uh, somebody needs to do it. <laughs> and, and here's hoping uh, you, uh, we get more of you. Thank you. I'd love that. Next week on Pitchfork Economics, we'll be answering more of your questions in another Ask Me Anything. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.